Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shiat Day New York. Well, thank you for listening. This is uh, excellent. We're uh, really excited. We're here with uh, award-winning director, producer, and editor, Vanessa Gould. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Rob. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing to have you here. Um, yeah, you recently launched this uh, terrific documentary. Again, uh, you know, we were just, I was with my wife. We're like, hey, what should we do on a Sunday? And we, we saw this thing about obituaries. And, uh, you know, I, I've always read obituaries. I don't know why. I've always liked them. And uh, you wound up making a, a magnificent film about the writers and the subject matter. And, yeah, it was incredible. Thank you very much. How did it? How did this all come about? Well, it was um, it was certainly some 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 happenstance. I was in, I was not an obituary reader, mm. um, uh, but about seven years ago now, I guess it was, um, someone who was in my prior documentary passed away at a sort of a young age. He was fifty three. Um, he was a obscure artist working outside of Paris in the medium of paper, technically origami, but he was really sort of like a paper sculptor. Mm. The most fame he had ever had three days after he died when mm. his obituary hit. I guess it was probably a week, tragically enough. And I often think if he had only been able to see that somehow. That's like life, right? The best party you ever have is the one you can't attend. It's your, <laughs> it's like your wake or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> and it's sort of like though, like all of that sort of existential oddities that surround that very notion, that sort of captivated me in the days after he died and as we were putting the obituary together. And basically what happened was I sort of, and and one of the probably two dozen people that actually knew this guy kind of well, he was really a reclusive person Mm. um, and didn't have uh, much family support at the time. Um, I sort of stepped up and thought, well, what can I do? You know, um, it felt like his the memory of him would, it felt like it started to evaporate as soon as he died. It was this sort of a panicked feeling. And um, and so I contacted about two dozen newspapers and just announced his death, added a couple pictures, not even knowing what to expect, not right. even having the time to expect anything, right. really. And the only paper that called me was the New York Times. Wow. And um, Marguerite Fox, who's one of the staff reporters, and I talked on the phone for about half a day. And she asked me a lot of questions about him that I didn't have the answers to. I had only mm. known him as an adult, like in the last you know decade of his life. And some of those answers I never found. It was another existential quandary almost of like feeling like I was holding this butterfly net and trying to catch what we could of this person's life before we forgot it. Right. Um, you basically saved his life in, in death. <laughs> well, sort of. Um and I realized, I mean, obviously that's not exclusive to him. It's like a, it's it's a thing, you know, right. like how can we remember people? And the process of that was actually once you kind of communed with the grief and sort of rose out of that, it still was there. But the joy of catching him and re- rediscovering him and remembering him and remembering the funny things like that is those were the emotions that I sort of was like wow this is incredible um well by the way I think you know to to use our propaganda the disruption here I think is that you know in, when you as you move into you know discussing uh, your new film obit it's a movie about death that is unbelievably life affirming 
Yeah. That's what I think makes it really <laughs> special. I, we, I, we walked out of the theater like, oh, my God, how great is this to be alive on this planet? Yeah. Well, I mean, that was, I guess, I, I'm grateful to hear you say that. Thank you very much. Um, maybe it's almost inevitable in a way. I mean, when you look back at history and you remember the stories, it's just, it's remarkable. And it's, in, you know, inspiring and um, invigorating in a way. Well, I, I'll, listen, I'll tell you, for, for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, I mean, I think that... Um... You know, it's a great documentary. It's it's because uh, it's 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 wonderful stories, interesting characters. You know, there's uh, uh, interesting people who are writing these documentaries behind the scenes at the New York Times. Always good, uh, and we'll get to that. But but one of the things that really struck me was that so many of the stories. Forget the obituary writers. Mm-hmm. But uh, this aviator, Eleanor Smith, and um, John Fairfax, the guy who rode across the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, William P. Wilson, the media consultant. I mean, uh, and, and of course, for people in advertising, you know, we have to hear about Dick Rich from Wells Rich Green. To me, what I thought was very interesting, that if I were you, I would suddenly go, I know my next three films I'm working on. Well, it's true. Um, and I think that that was the almost the coalescing... Um, eureka moment that I had like because after this experience of mine happened I started looking at the obits page every day and like I was like almost every day I was like wow this is a documentary this is a documentary and these are almost all mini documentaries and there was this sort of lovely meta thing going on of like well let's make a documentary about people who write documentaries in print almost and like there was really nice mirroring of what they do to their subjects and what we do to ours if you get abstract about it yeah um and yeah we had the opportunity to sort of dive into many little documentaries and make a film of many mini documentaries and that was a total joy for our editor our archivist and me and um yeah i think it's uh very interesting that suddenly Again, I think your film is 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 what is what would would uh, be the catalyst for this. But suddenly, it's the obituary page that becomes somehow a muse. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think we ever think about. It. I think the, there's a, there's a heaviness to the obits. Although when you start to become an obituary reader, you suddenly realize that no, 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 the 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 great stories you want in life, they're here. Yeah, and I almost came to it from like a point of naivete. I mean, I was like maybe. 35 when this event happened and I didn't even have I guess like if someone had asked me my opinion about obituaries I would have thought they were dour or something Mm. but I was almost like agnostic on them and so that might have actually worked in our favor because my first experience was this sort of very um, life-affirming like vital um, animating of the past Mm. In a way that, um, like, I didn't have to work through any preconceived notions or, like, work against them. Um, Yeah. Well, I think, you know, just on the filmmaking piece of it, uh, what I thought was very special about what you did was, uh, you know, you came in through the the obit writers themselves who, in in amongst themselves, are their own kind of interesting coterie of people. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, when, for example, uh, again, back to the filmmaking, I think that it particularly struck me on on Eleanor Smith, that that aviator. Uh, It was, I love the ephemera of their lives. So you intertwine the kind of the hunt for their story with very filmic pieces. 
that I think, you know, again, brought their lives to life, ironically, as we're hunting to figure out their death. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost this weird yin-yang thing. Like, the the harder you look, the more you find, and why are you looking? And, I mean, often I've thought to myself, like, the hunt for the information about my friend's life was so voracious in the the days after he died. And it's such a weird concept to me that we weren't doing that in the week before he died or the years before he died. And so it's these, it are these, these strange phenomena in the way our rites of passage happen and the way that we pay attention to things. I mean, it's tragic in a way. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the stories that made it into the film were the ones, I mean, because we had many at the start, more than I can even remember, probably, but were the ones where the hunt was um, glorious in a way, mm. and the stuff that we were able to find on these people. There were some p- stories that we really wanted to put in the film, but we just didn't have any visuals. Yeah. Um, but the stuff that had these great visuals, such as the aviatrix and John Fairfax literally rowing across the Atlantic, I- like, in a suit, <laughs> 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 you know, in the middle of the century, like, these things, um, once we were able to find that, this, the stories almost just started to tell themselves. Yeah, that, and I think that, that, that that's that's what was really cool about the JFK story, because we, uh, I think at a certain point, no matter how old you are, you sort of see that JFK Nixon thing. There, there's something about that seminal moment that, oh, this is the modern age. Yeah. And to tell the story of the media consultant behind it, and it, it, even using the phrase media consultant, I feel like that does this uh, William P. Wilson a little, uh, It's not. It, it doesn't justify how brilliant this guy was. Yeah, it's true. And David Halberstam wrote some beautiful stuff about his, I mean, he had a varied life. He did so much before and after his political career. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's hard for us in the current age to understand the magnitude of his impact on JFK's campaign. Yeah. And and and, and uh, literally changing the course of history. Yeah. And he was, there's this little bit of a funny story. He was a imaginary figure to us for much of the edit process. We saw one picture of him um, from a C-SPAN, and he was like 50 years older, so he was gray hair. He had, right. didn't have the look that, like, him in the in the six, in the early 60s was in our mind only, and we were cutting together and cutting together, and then our archivist, like, found some canister of behind-the-scenes film in some, like, affiliate station in the middle of the country, and he said, you know, let's just dig this up and take a look at it. And he sent us this file. And, like, we're watching, and it's JFK, Nixon, JFK, Don Hewitt, blah, blah, blah. And then we see this guy, and he's walking around, and he's pointing, and we're like, I think that's him. He creative-directed yes. JFK. Yes, yeah. I mean. And you, sh- you can see it in the footage before the debate. He's, like, he's organizing things, and he's paying attention to the ceiling, and he's paying attention to the floor, and... And his energy was incredible. And we we took a screenshot of that and we sent it to his wife and we said, is this your husband? And she wrote back instantly. She's like, that's him. And it was like it was I I can't describe the feeling. It was incredible. And then there was this even this one moment when we could hear him laughing. And it was just it was a communion with the past. And we felt literally like we were almost reanimating it. It was an incredible feeling. When you approached the project, did you know you were going to do these cutaways? Like one of the cool things I thought too is on this, the Dick Rich story from Wells Rich Green. Mm -hmm. We should get into that a little bit, especially because 
uh, you know, we're 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 an ad agency, so yeah. we like to hear about the ad people. But I think having those cutaways was that something you saw immediately in your mind, or is that something that materialized in the process? No, I kind. I mean, it was a very abstract idea, but you know, and I'm sure you think about this in your work. But when you switch mediums, and we we were taking the print medium and bringing it into the documentary film mm. medium. You can't, it it's can't be like a lateral move, right? You have to transform it in some way, elevate it in some way, especially when we're moving from a two-dimensional medium to like a three-dimensional time-based medium. I knew we had to seize all of the opportunities that we would have at our fingertips. And so visually bringing archival into the mix was just an obvious Right. idea. But it had to be an abstract idea for a really long time because in a weird way, we didn't really have a lot of control over who ended up getting into the right. film. It was a matter of who the writers happened to remember and could kind of tell the story about with like love and fondness, who we could get archival footage of. And we had some real disappointments. And so it was a sort of bizarre, like passive aggressive stance we took towards not injecting our own opinions or our own will, but like seeing which stories could kind of rise to the, the, to mm. the top. And, um, but always pushing really hard the idea that the archival was what was going to drive it and staying committed to that idea. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a strange little dance that we were doing, but, um, but we worked long and hard enough that we were able to get enough really weird, rare archival footage yeah. to like even bring you know new insights into somebody like Michael Jackson, you know, because right. that was the other, the other thing. Like the film does deal with a fair number of notable people, um, and we tried to find stuff that you might not have seen of them. And we even tried to portray the Nixon Kennedy debate, which is iconic in its yeah. imagery, in like a slightly more behind the scenes new way. And so. Oh, yeah. That was the idea with the archival is it had to be fresh. It had to be different. And it had to to shift or turn someone's impression of something either upside down or like present a new angle or introduce them to something that they had obviously never dreamed about before. I, th I thought it was it was interesting, too, on the um, the competition for the stories. You know, there was there was no shortage of people, uh, you know, the writers kind of pushing their stories. So I uh, again, going back to the Dick Rich story from Wells Rich Green, I mean, that one seemed like one of those that, uh, you know, they weren't sure. Like, should they use this guy? Should they not use this guy? Maybe mm -hmm. talk a little bit about a little bit about, you know, the guy who invented some, you know, Benson and Hedges stuff and some Alka-Seltzer stuff. Yeah. And it was, I mean, the 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 scenario with the Dick Rich obit is sort of a classic one where they're on the fence about it. The editors can't quite they haven't had enough time to like fully assess the body of work. So it's sort of like a contender. And then the more you look, the more you find and the more you realize, OK, well. And so uh, the reporter for that obituary, Paul Vitello, was just sort of going through all this old ad stuff. And it was delightful. And um, yeah, no matter what shape your stomach is in. And um, some of this stuff is hysterical. Yeah. And it was a joy to sort of go through that archival and be able to put some of it in the film. Well, he was, he was a famous guy. What was interesting in the film, I saw I saw two books, uh, you know, as you're watching the film, the, the, the writers are doing their interviews. And I saw that there was Mary Wells, mm -hmm. you know, her books right there, you know, and I thought, what's going on with Mary Wells's book? Then suddenly they go into the story. <laughs> yeah, I think they consulted Mary Wells's book to get a sense of, of 
uh, Dick Rich's scope of work yeah. and the context of his work, and that's sort of what led them to understand that he was worth writing about. I'm sure Paul Vitello then looked at it even further. Yeah, I'm sure. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the writers of the obituaries. And again, I think there's a very in- wonderful irony that uh, obituary is kind of the place where you end your career. And it seems like a lot of these people were almost having a renaissance uh, you know, in, in their, you know, it seemed like a, not a place to die uh, metaphorically, but a place that's actually kind of blossoming. Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about disruption, it's it's gentle disruption. But the creative writing that's going mm. on in, in the nonfiction journalism world in the obits page is is extraordinary. And they have they have opportunities on that page that they don't have on any of their beats as reporters. And I think they know that to a certain degree when they take the assignment, but they probably discover it more and more as time goes by. Just how Bruce much Bruce Weber he he'd been around the paper for a while. Yeah, yeah. he'd been all over the paper. As I said many of them, religion reporters, food critics, <laughs> um, culture reporters you kind of name it, and they had they had sort of been there, done that. Um, but you know, to get back to your question, it's not a coincidence that the obits desk draws people who have life histories and a fair amount of seasoned reporting under their belt to be able to write pretty intensely on deadline, um, and also be able to have some familiarity with the historical events that they're writing about. It's not to say that somebody young couldn't do it, but it certainly helps if you've lived through the Nixon-Kennedy debate mm-hmm. era to, um, to to sort of understand the historical context of that a little bit more. I thought there's a great moment in the film with um, Marguerite Fox, and she says that she often gets uh, letters that uh, there are not enough strong female uh, obituaries. And she makes the point that, well, it's we're in the 20th century. <laughs> And it's coming. But, you know, this was like a white guy dominated world, you know. Yeah. Um, This this haunts me a little bit. I um, it's something that I sort of evolved and and had a sort of a greater understanding and sensitivity about the more we were cutting the film and sort of the longer I had to sort of take a hard look at that reality. Um, She gives a pretty rational explanation for Mm. it. But, um, you know, I kind of would love to take the chance to unearth the lives of people who didn't get obituaries in the New York Times because there certainly were many. That's a sequel. Yeah. I was. I learned <laughs> no the other day that Van Gogh didn't get an obituary in the Times because I, I guess at the time of his death, they just didn't. Same I with th- Kafka. I think we should call it No Bit. No Bit. People who didn't. I'm, a, I'm an you're, advertising, you're, I'm an advertising professional. I'm an advertising professional. No Bit for people who didn't get uh, obits. Yeah, well, it's 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 really an incredible film, and like you said, so you you had this uh, other film between the folds, right? That that was your first. That's right. Your first film, <laughs> and so how did you get interested in uh, just briefly, maybe on origami? Well, briefly, I was an, I wasn't even a filmmaker. I was working in the corporate world um, and was pretty unsatisfied. And what were you doing? I was an investment banker at Credit Suisse First Boston, mostly because I was really good at math in college, and they recruited me, and I needed money um, uh, to pay off my student loans and such. So I took this job as an investment banker. It burned me out, but I, I, I worked there for a couple of years. And um, at one point, I, was, I would do these weird things to sort of decompress at night. And one of them was... Um, reading about this crazy mathematician who built these massive origami models based on mathematical concepts that were visually 
sort of like manifested in origami and it was actually really gorgeous to look at. And I love that idea that math would inform like visual beauty. And so a friend of mine took me out to dinner one night and said, Vanessa, you hate the corporate world. Um, I, and he happened to be an executive producer at 60 Minutes. And he was like, you don't know it yet, but you're actually a documentary filmmaker. Go on Amazon, get yourself a used camera, and make a film about something that you think is really interesting. And he's like, wow. what's the last thing that you read about that was really interesting? And I was like, in this sort of sassy way, I was like, ha, huh, a mathematician who makes origami? Sort of like almost defiantly, like obviously you're never going to make a movie about that. And he said a few expletives and then went on to say, just do it. And I literally had an epiphany moment. moment. It was over Indian food down on East 6th Street and just said, I'm going to do this. And so I quit my job, bought an old Panasonic DVX100 on eBay for like, I think, 700 bucks, 750 bucks, and uh, interviewed this mathematician who did origami. And the the catalyzing moment for that, sorry, this isn't a short answer. No, this is amazing. Um, was after the, the the first interview that I did with him, he said, um, and he did this reluctantly, you know, I just called this guy out of the blue, but um, he could see that I was pretty interested and I had a math background. And he said, if you have another hour, I want to take you down the street to my friend Michael. And Michael <laughs> is a papermaker and he made origami on the other end of the spectrum, this like super soft, interpretive, completely art-driven origami. And he's like, we're working in the same medium, but we're coming from absolutely different points of view and sort of like sensibilities. And that's when I was like, wow, you could do, you take something as simple as a piece of paper and look at the people who convene on that as a way of expressing their intellectual ideas and you can study the creative mind and the technical mind and how they differ and how they're actually like mm. completely the same. And what was it like, because I didn't know that about you, what was it like to go, you know what, I'm gonna throw away, I'm sure you had a great salary at Credit Suisse. Like, how do you have the guts to do that? Like, because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are like, I would love to do that. Um, it was probably one of the most riveting moments of my life to make that decision. I mean, in a way, it it sort of was made for me by how um, how much I wanted to do something intellectual and how little of that I was getting in my job. I mean, there's a lot of corporate jobs that probably do have a lot of intellectual stimulation. This was just like, running models. Like advertising. Like advertising. No. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of creative and like strategy. I yeah. was just sort of running financial models and M&A modeling and traveling a lot. And um, it was just sort of like a real grind for me. I worked really hard at it. Mm. And as a woman, I was it was in industrial, large cap industrials. And I was probably one of three women in probably a group of 60 or 70 wow. bankers. And so I was almost sort of forging my way as like a an up-and-coming female banker. Um, but I, sort of, I think deep down inside, I just knew. So so you, part of it was that you ha you were running from something. So, yeah, exactly. But part of it is that you were running to something. Exactly. It's such a great way to put it. And it was sort of the marrying of those two ideas that was sort of what made it happen. Because I, I, was, I was looking at your background, and, and so you were art history, architecture, and philosophy. So there must have been, at, at Columbia, where my son goes, go Lions, um, <laughs> there must have been something, though, in the maybe the architecture that you saw in the paper models. Totally. I mean, I think 
Ideas made manifest in art and architecture is a really interesting place, sculpture, architecture. And I was drawn to it because there, I had this sort of love for romantic ideas, but also like a real interest in the technical side of how that mm. stuff actually gets done. Um, and so, yeah, architecture and origami are like really almost... Connected. Two sides of the same coin. And was it in your art history? Were there certain artists that you really were attracted to, really studied deeper on, or I was drawn to the modernists, mm. you know, Kandinsky and Clay and Picasso and Brock, and you know, people who were, you know, but so were so were most people. That's not that, but you know, um, it's just exciting. And speaking of disruptive, I mean, those people were doing really wonderfully oh, yeah. disruptive stuff. But somebody like Calder, I think, is quite architectural. Yeah, I was going to uh, say Calder. There's a new Whitney exhibit, I think. Oh, is there? Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, and the funny thing is, is that, like, when I, I found these kindred spirits in the origami world who were almost like these displaced citizens of the same place that I had come from and these sort of theoretical physicists at MIT and these sort of weird abstract paper artists had all sort of had the same intellectual meandering as I had about like, is it about form or function? And like all of that sort of like, how do you make an idea physical? And so, yeah, the metaphors are really nice. Hmm. So uh, you started doing, what was the first thing you did? Because you've done documentaries, you've done commercials, actually, you've done Music video, like on, in your film life, what what comes first? Mostly the film. The other stuff that I've done is really not even. They're just sort of appetizers and dalliances and fr- fun friends with projects along mm. the way. I mean, um, I think it's really great to try and work in other formats and stuff, just to figure stuff out and um, turn your habits upside down a little bit. Um, I mean, did you find a big difference in working, you know, within 30 or 60 seconds versus, you know, a documentary where you've got much more time? Yeah. Yeah. But you're always I mean, you're always thinking about the narrative mm. and you're always sort of in an ar- in an almost architectural way. You're almost kind of thinking about where do I need to start the story and where do I need to end it and what needs to happen in between. And that's the same with like a 30 second commercial or a music video, certainly a, um, a movie trailer. Um, so it's sort of it's like different shades of the same color or something. I mean, do you find yourself... I'll sort of, I'll, maybe I'll walk into this question this way. Uh, there's an interesting guy named Robert McKee. I don't know if you know Robert McKee's mm-hmm. story structure classes. He teaches screenwriting. And um, he's uh, got a theory about storifying, that's his word, uh, business. So he, he's gone from doing you know a lot of uh, Hollywood work to helping brands tell their narratives. And he... I took a, a, a seminar with him, and, and he sort of tasked the class, when you think about a brand, start thinking in terms of story. And I'm wondering if, do you approach a project thinking like an architect? Do you architecturify a given task? Th- did you look at Obit, for example, almost in an architectural way? I think I did. It's a dreamy architecture. It's not like a... It's hard to sort of explain. It's sort of like it's all relative. So are you going up or down or left or right or ahead or back? But it's always sort of blurry at the same time. I mean, but we like we 
studied the structure of the film rigorously. And what is what? And how does that materialize? Do you work off uh, boards? Are you doing yeah. things physically? Maybe talk a little bit about your process. Yeah. Um, well, we, as uh, many filmmakers do, would buy these packs of colored index cards, and uh, there's like five colors in them, and so we would sort of color code. Um, just the the different elements that were essential, like a verite thread, archival footage, mm. interview footage. And you start just sort of like moving that stuff around. And it was a really visual process because you sort of look at the distributed, you know, things are and right. like out of balance or Is in balance. Is there too much of this yeah, or that? Yeah, exactly. Or... or like this person's all at the beginning and... Um, I, I mean, the film probably. The thing about it is, is it's always trial and error. I don't think you can ever intellectualize it because mm. every time you intellectualize it, you're you're wrong. It's it's a really mysterious part of the process to me, and it and this is why I guess why I said it was sort of like dreamy architecture. It's like you're you're thinking about the intellectual significance of all this stuff, but you're ultimately going by like gut intuition, and if something feels right, and and like the mood, like like we were really attentive to the mood and so like if this scene is going to be sort of melancholy or philosophic or existential we'll we'll try and like give people like a lot of palate cleansers throughout the film and so um and i feel like that's a really satisfying way to experience a film is if your emotions are constantly like being excited in one way or another and so i feel like it was almost that emotional landscape that ultimately drove the, quote, architecture of the film more than anything. that, And that's stuff that you just feel. Yeah. It's interesting now because with all this distribution on Netflix and uh, Amazon and iTunes and what have you, um, there's a, I'm feeling that there's a documentary revolution that we're living through now, almost a golden age of documentary. And I was, as I was thinking about your film, I thought, you know, the, the unsung hero genre of documentary films, and I'm thinking about... Um, uh, the Wrecking Crew, mm-hmm. or Twenty Feet from Stardom, like these are the behind-the-scenes people. Uh, I mean, are you feeling uh, now that like you're in part of some kind of golden moment of documentary? I don't know if I like situate myself in it, but I certainly feel lucky to that there's audiences for the stuff that you know fascinates me. I mean, I think the really great thing about those unsung heroes is it sort of goes hand in hand with getting to watch people who are really, really good at what they do mm. in their process. Because that's sort of what these films end up being. It's like you get to see what these people do because what they did was so significant, even though you didn't, you hadn't heard of them. And I think watching process is like a real, it's just endlessly fascinating, at least to me. Yeah. Almost more than plot or yeah. narrative, you know? Um, at least that's where I sort of, I feel comfortable. So... Um, the fact that people are like digging that all that kind of stuff is is terrific. And did you think about uh, maybe jumping to narrative a little bit? I mean, did you think about what story you were telling? I mean, these you know, you know the classic stories. I mean, some of the, some of this, these obit writers, I guess, were kind of like uh, you know, in some instances, like the the Bruce Weber thing. He was kind of overcoming the monster. He had a time. Like, time was really this guy's enemy, trying to get that obit out. Yeah, totally. We we thought about that a lot. We actually, um, to get into our process, we sort of defined two categories of the film. We called it the ghost and the machine. And the ghosts were all the things we were trying to catch that were gone. The past, the stories, the memories, all of archival. And the machine was 
the machine, the the daily grind, the subways they took to work, the elevators going up and down, horns on the street, tea, typing yeah. away, or they all hunt and peck, as everyone yeah, points yeah. out, <laughs> the clock constantly ticking, and all of that sort of like that drumbeat that keeps them going forward while they're constantly going for this abstract, ephemeral stuff. Yeah. And we really played off of those two, di- like that dichotomy, even in the score, but obviously also in the editing a lot. Yeah. Um, and it was like a really, I think it was a really helpful way for us to, again, keep the emotions sort of fresh and structure it in a way that like people could sort of experience both that drumbeat and that visceral quality mm. of memory at the same time. Yeah, yeah, you, you can feel that. Now, the other book that I saw in there, and uh, it, to me, it's, it's I can't believe we, we, you didn't even talk about it, was was Keith Richards' <laughs> Life. Have you heard this before? Yes. I, I mean, we all know that they don't need to write an obituary because Keith Richards is never, never going to die. die. Well, if Bruce <laughs> was here, he would tell you that I don't have the answer to this question, but Bruce would tell you that he has not written Keith Richards' advance obituary. Maybe somebody else has, but I think he says that that was on his book because there was a week, and there's probably some of your listeners who know this. There was some week, maybe three years ago now, where like three people affiliated with the Rolling Stones all died. Yeah. It was like a producer and a background musician or something. I, I can't remember. Yeah, uh, I forget. One of the piano players. Yeah. And so I think Bruce does a lot of the sort of cultural and music mm. people. So that's that's the official explanation for that one. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but, I mean, it's kind of almost perfect that, like, this guy who will never die and has a book called Life is, like, sit- I mean, I never noticed it until, like, we looked back at the footage. I didn't see it in the field. All right. So the last question we like to ask uh, of our guests, um, and again, your, I didn't know your um, your brave leap from uh, Credit Suisse. Mm. Uh, what is one piece of advice you'd give to somebody who's got a passion like you had? Like, what should they do? What should they, at least Friday today? What should they yeah. do Monday? If you've got something nagging at you that you really find interesting, it's not to say there wouldn't be hardship and struggle, but the fulfillment and satisfaction that come with sort of following those gut intuitions. And I and I and I sort of get back to what I was saying before, like don't intellectualize. You can't intellectualize it. It's gotta be this sort of emotional drive that you have, something that just eats away at you. When I told people that I was quitting being an investment banker to make a documentary about origami, every even my closest friends thought I was really I had I had I just pulled way too many all nighters. Like she's really you know going off the deep end. It it kind of sounds like something in a Seinfeld episode. Yeah, it's it's almost car- a caricature of of the a crazy idea. But sometimes those might be the the because it's so out of left field that nobody else is doing it, and that's kind of a blessing in and of itself in this day and age when everybody's doing everything. So if you have a wacky idea, um, and you wouldn't mind, you know, thinking about it 24-7 for a while, I would say, you know, consider it. Can't thank you enough. Uh, you've been really uh, inspiring, and uh, your film, Obit, is amazing. And uh, I hope uh, people, you know, go see it and really uh, be really thankful we get to live on this earth. Well, th- yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, brought to you by TBWA Shy Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashiatny.tumblr.com.